Thank you, Jenny, for praying and reading. <clears throat> so here we are once again in the book of Acts. We've been in here for a few weeks now, slowly, slowly making our way through, uh, through this incredible story of the early church and what, trying to understand what it was about the early church that caused it to grow so rapidly and see so many people come to faith to the point that, that in a very, very short period of time, and only actually a couple of hundred years, it became the dominant faith in the Roman Empire. It was recognized by the Roman Emperor Constantine as an official religion. He didn't make it the state religion, by the way, just for those of you who wondered if that's what he did. No, he recognized it as a legal religion, and it sort of became the backbone of Western culture to the point where today, even though we live in the West and we live in a culture that is trying to reject um, the foundational uh, teachings of the Christian faith and beliefs of the Christian faith, we are still living off the avails uh, of that uh, that remarkable expansion of the of the church to today. And we're trying to understand you know, what it was like there and what that has to do with us now. And one of the things we've said over and over again and is, is really important to repeat again is that it's easy to idealize the early church. Uh, sometimes in church communities, uh, there is a strong uh, voice and desire from people to get back to the early church as though the early church had it all figured out. The early church was very pure the early church was very effective, and uh, there was a model that the early church gives us. And that's understandable, because if you look at these first ver uh, chapters in Acts, you see that even though there was all kinds of trouble, and there was hardship, and there was persecution, the church did just grow drastically and quite dramatically. And the picture of the early church is pretty incredible, like what we just heard Jenny Reed, let me re repeat part of it again, um, excuse me, in, in chapter 4, it talks about how the full number of those who believed were of one heart and soul, some translations say one heart and mind, and no one said that any of the things that belonged to him was his own, but they had everything in common, and with great power the apostles were giving their testimony to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, and great grace was upon them all. There was, listen to this, not a needy person among them. For as many as were owners of lands or houses sold them and brought the proceeds of what was sold and laid it at the apostles' feet, and it was dis distributed to each as any had need. And again, for those of you who are visiting, we've been saying over and over again as we've looked at these uh, types of passages, uh, it's not describing like a commune where everybody drove VW vans and had peace signs on it and wore daisies in their hair and kind of, kind of talked about love and getting along in a commune kind of situation. It wasn't like that. What it was, though, was that there was this deep, profound commitment and unity among the believers. They felt this sense of family toward one another that actually transcended their sense of responsibility even toward their blood relatives so that when anybody had means and they saw someone who was in need, 
they took their resources and used those resources to help those who had, had need. And they did it voluntarily and they did it occasionally, but the result was, was not that everybody was on the same level, so everybody had the same size house and everybody drove the same lousy cars and that kind of thing. No, there was, there was disparity within the community in the sense that some had more material wealth than others, but it wasn't a, a big deal because nobody went without. Nobody had need. And so that was kind of the, the picture of the early church community. And that's why you want to idealize the early church. That's why I want to idealize the early church. I admit, you know, I think we're pretty awesome, like in a humble way. I love the community that's being knit together here in a humble way. But I also read that passage and I'm like, wow, man, like we're not even close. Man, they're awesome. They were awesomer than we are. And, and you can feel that way as you read these kinds of passages. But Notice that when chapter 4 ends, chapter 5 begins, and you get skipped over this passage and go on to the next maybe good passage or a passage about persecution from outside the church or something like that. But this is, this is a, a tough passage about a problem that arose within the early church that got dealt with in a very harsh, very severe way. And we got we to gotta deal with it. It's in the Bible. We can't run away from it just because it's difficult. We got to face it. We got to listen to it. We got to learn from it. And that's what we're going to try to do this morning. Now, understand the Ananias and Sapphira story is unique in the New Testament and in the book of Acts. Nothing like sensibilities a little bit um, because it is so unique. But let's not sugarcoat what happens in this story. I'm just going to put it out there. Don't tweet it. But hear it, God executed Ananias and Sapphira. That's what he did. It was a summary execution as well. There was no court case. There was no trial. There was no appeals process. There was no opportunity for Ananias and Sapphira to, to kind of turn from the direction they were going. They were executed. They sinned grievously and they were put to death for it. And it here with the uh, phrase, um, the doctrine of proportionality in law, it's this idea that the punishment is supposed to fit the crime. So we don't put people in prison for theft uh, to the same degree that we put people in prison for murder. The punishment should fit the crime. It's even rooted in the Old Testament. Deuteronomy 19, what, is the, uh, what does Moses say? He says, a life for a life, an eye for an eye, a tooth for a tooth, a hand for a hand, a foot for a foot. And that seems proportional. Now, here we have Ananias and Sapphira, and it looks like they committed theft, maybe, to some degree, somehow. And God uses capital punishment on them. And it seems way too far. And one of the reasons I think we need to tackle this is because when we read the Bible on our own and we're just sort of reading through it or when maybe you have a, a friend or, or a neighbor or a family member or someone that you've been sharing the gospel with and you say, hey, you know, if you want to really understand, uh, what can happen is, is it can totally mess with our understanding of God and color our view of God. Um, 
Because we would like to think of God as fundamentally loving, right? The Bible says that. God is love. We want to think of God as fundamentally compassionate and gracious. You'll remember he says that about himself in the, that old story in Exodus when Moses says, I really want to see you. Let me see you. And God says, if you see my face, you'll die because of my glory, but I'll put you in the cleft of the rock and I'll pass by. And when God does that, God describes his character and he says, the Lord, the Lord, compassionate and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in love. And then you read this and you say, what? Slow to anger and abounding in love. God, God seems like a like a, an unpredictable temperamental dad who just kind of goes off. You know, some of us have had those kinds of dads or been those kinds of dads that are, are unpredictable and our kids don't know where they stand. All of a sudden they explode. And there are people who say, we got to rid ourselves of that kind of God. And maybe we shouldn't look at these kinds of stories. What are we supposed to make of this? Well, we're going to try to make sense of this passage together according to basically two points and application. So we're going to look at the character of hypocrisy. We're going to look at the seriousness of sin. And then we're going to see and remember the mercy of God. And each of these things are important for understanding why the church was so effective at, at proclaiming this Jesus to the culture and why it was actually so attractive to them. And I may, I may not make that connection very well yet. I'll be honest with you, that, that point is somewhat half-baked in my head at this time, so it's not in the, in the bulletin. But the Holy Spirit is here, and he may have something important to say in the moment, but otherwise, I'll get you next time. Here we go. All right. First of all, the character of, of hypocrisy. Now, as I said before, this sin that Ananias and Sapphira committed, they, it does not look super serious on the face of it. They just didn't give all the money that they had made on this sale of this purchase. What is wrong with that? Why were they, are, is it wrong for them to hold back some of the money in and of itself? The answer is no, because in verse 4, uh, Paul says this, while it remained unsold, did it not remain your own? After it was sold, was it not at your disposal? So Peter, I called him Paul, but it's actually Peter. Peter acknowledges that it was their property and they could do with it what they wanted to. And even after they sold it, the cash value with your stuff, the things that you deem right to do with your stuff. But he goes on and he says this. Why is it that you have contrived this deed in your heart? And that's very important, the way he phrases that. You have contrived a deed in your heart. You have not lied to man, but to God. Now, in order to understand what Peter is saying, we need to realize that in verse 2, when it says, with his wife's knowledge, he kept back for himself the proceeds, that phrase, kept back, is actually translated as theft in other places or as stealing in other places. So, for example, in the Old Testament, all right, this is a little complicated, but I'm going to try to keep it simple. The Greek version of the Old Testament. So the Old Testament was written in Hebrew. It was translated into Greek. The Greek version of the Old Testament is called the Septuagint. 
in the story of Achan. Remember the people of Israel walked around the city of Jericho a bunch of times? Seven. And the walls came down and they plundered the city of Jericho. They were not allowed to take any of the riches of the city because all of it was God's. Achan took some of that and hid it. And it says that what Achan did in the Greek version of the Septuagint, that word is the same word that is used in Acts, and it says that he stole from the Lord. Okay? Paul uses the same word in Titus, okay, to describe theft. So what is happening here is, is that Ananias and Sapphira had agreed beforehand to sell a a certain property for a certain amount and then give the proceeds to the church. So prior to the actual event, they had worked it out, maybe with Peter or one of the other apostles. This is what we're going to do. And instead, they reneged on what they planned to do, and therefore, they kept back some of the proceeds, and that constituted stealing from God. Okay? So that's why it's theft. Is that clear? Now, but there's more to it than just that. If you go back to chapter 4, the end of chapter 4, it says, Thus Joseph, who was also called by the apostles Barnabas, verse 37 now, sold a field that belongs to Christ. He does a good thing, selling a field, lays it at the apostles' feet. And then the beginning of verse 5, it says, But a man named Ananias with his wife Sapphira, sold a piece of property as well. And what Luke is setting up here is a contrast between this Barnabas guy and Ananias and Sapphira. And he's saying, Barnabas, as a righteous man who loved the people of God, he had this resource, he he liquidated the resource in order to give it to the church. Ananias and Sapphira, under the pretense of being righteous people, who had a resource and wanted to liquidate that resource for the sake of the church, were actually being hypocrites that wanted to be known as righteous people, that they were all in for Jesus Christ, but they weren't actually willing to go all the way. They were trying to to publicly display a certain character while at the same time privately holding on to their actual selfish character. In other words, they were trying to buy a reputation in the community on the cheap. They wanted a reputation with the people of God that they were so awesome, that they were so devoted, that they were so committed, that they were like Barnabas, you know, not impoverishing, but but liquidating resources for the sake of the community, etc. But they weren't actually devoted to God. It displays themselves as one thing, but actually is something else, right? And that's what Ananias and Sapphira were being. (laughs) You hear the biggest, one of the biggest criticisms of the church, and if you spend time with non-Christians or unbelievers, um, they they will often say, well, the church is full of hypocrites. And then, you know, when you're feeling kind of snarky, your response is, well, yeah, we could use one more. Why don't you join us? Right? Um, But it's true. The The church is full of hypocrites. All people are 
are hypocrites to some degree. Wouldn't you agree about your own self, that there is hypocrisy within you, that there is your outer self and there, there, that there is your inner self and those things are not always in line with one another? I mean, we all know that we're not exactly the people that we ought to be, ought to be. And we know that we're not entirely the people that others think we are. None of us lives with absolute total consistency. The Christian is the person who admits that and knows that and repents of that and seeks a way to break through that. But then there are what you could call sort of the true posers in the church. Think of politicians who haven't darkened the door for a church, of a church for a long, 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 long time. But then when they start campaigning their faith or their religion in some some countries, including to some degree in this country, but less so than, than others, like down south, for example. Next thing you know, you know, they're walking into the Presbyterian church or the Catholic church or the whatever church on a Sunday to make sure that, that there's a photograph taken of them at worship because they're trying to create a particular uh, persona for the public to receive. These are the true so-called Posers, they, they do it for the reputation or people who are part of a church for the connections. You know, lots of, lots of people are in churches who they know that they can help each other out. You know, I got a business and you're looking for a plumber and I happen to be a plumber and I'm in your church. So you say, hey, you know, you want to do some plumbing for me? And, it, and it's good. There are people who actually are part of church communities for the express purpose of building where if you were a politician and you were not a member of one of the big four kind of denominations, either a Catholic or a United Church or Presbyterian Church of Canada or an Anglican, uh, you couldn't get elected. And so you made sure that you were part of that community, not because you were following Jesus Christ, but because there were advantages for you socially, uh, politically, or perhaps even financially. Now here's what's at stake when that happens. What's at stake is the integrity of the church. And that's a big deal. Remember when we looked at chapter 1, the purpose of the church was what? Why did, what was the mission that Jesus sent the church on? It was to be my witnesses. To be my Witnesses to show my glory, to show my mercy, to show my beauty, to show my grace to the world. And the hypocrisy of Christians who aren't living with integrity threatens to undermine that. And the church needs to be unified in that mission. That's why this hypocrisy that Ananias and Sapphira were committing was, was such a gangrene that threatened the actual health of the church it could if it was spread if it continued to spread if that kind of mentality about this is what the church is for if that continued to infiltrate into the church it could actually kill it look at verse 3 why has Satan as extreme a language as Peter could use this is no small thing and you see, what this also evidences, by the way, is, is that Satan is engaged in a life and death backhaul against the church and against God through the church. 
So here you have chapter 4 closing with the church is unified. People are sharing their goods. The gospel is spreading. People are coming to faith. And boom, Satan attacks the church by trying to infiltrate actual members within it in order to fight back, in order to retaliate. And so God judged. And it wasn't some kind of magic trick. It wasn't Peter doing voodoo or something like that. He didn't pull out a doll and start pinpricking it or anything like that. This was the Holy Spirit directly acting. So we see the character of hypocrisy. We see the size of it. But then we also see the seriousness of sin. When I was reading this, I was asking myself, as I was studying it, why are you so shocked by this? And again, it's because it seems so harsh and it seems so over the top. And what I realized is, is that even my reaction to what God does in this situation reveals something about me. And if you're shocked, maybe it reveals this thing about you as well, and it's this. We don't really understand the holiness of God. We don't really understand the importance of the holiness of God. We like to think about the love of God, the kindness of God, the patience of God. All these things are absolutely true, but God is, can you say holily patient? His, his patience is holy. His love is holy. His kindness is holy. His grace is holy. And because God is holy, he absolutely has to deal with sin and all sin, regardless of where it fits on our own personal scale, is deadly serious. The question shouldn't be, does the judgment fit the crime? That's the question I was asking at first. And I realized, wait a minute. When I ask the question, does the judgment fit the crime, what am I doing? I'm making myself the judge of God's actions. I'm essentially questioning what God has decided to do. I'm saying to myself, well, you know, uh, I, will ev I evaluate this crime and I evaluate the punishment and I weigh them in the balance and I decide whether God judged properly or not. That's backwards. If this is the word of God and, this, the wor and you can trust the word of God and it says that God judged Ananias and Sapphira, then what I should be asking is, is how serious is this crime if this is the judgment that it warranted? If we want to trust that God truly is paid, we also have to believe the other things the Bible says about him, that he is holy and that he is just and that sin is deadly, deadly serious. And maybe I don't tell you enough that God is, whole, uh, is patient and God is compassionate and God is gentle and God is kind, etc. But, but here's the problem. Even when we talk about the patience and compassion of God, we tend to interpret it as permissiveness. Stick with me here. Think of this. Here's, here's a child grows up in a Christian family and mom and dad teach her that lying is wrong. Lying is a sin. Lying is against God's truth. God is truth and it's against the Ten Commandments. 
and therefore you ought not lie because God loves you and he wants you to avoid that and he wants you to be a truth teller. And so the, the little girl, she, she grows up and she, she tries to tell the truth. De she doesn't deliberately lie with regularity. There's not a person here who's going to dare say, oh, I've never, I've never tried to lie. I've never purposely lied. It's always been, you know, uh, circumstantial or something. We, we know that we deliberately lie. But here's what happens. You do it, and then you get away with it. And you're like, hey, I was always taught never to lie, that God doesn't like lie, and that lying, you know, God sees everything. God is all-seeing and all-knowing, and you can't hide anything from God. And now I lie, and there's no lightning bolt. I kind of got away with it. I didn't get caught. I didn't get punished. I kind of got through. My conscience feels a little bit uh, 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 damaged, but I can shut it up if I, if I talk loud enough to it. And so subconsciously, she says, well, that wasn't too bad. Nobody got hurt. wasn't a big deal. But again, she tries again. And she still doesn't get caught. And she does it again. And nobody gets hurt. Until eventually, through that repetition, and as the lies grow, she, she's not just someone who lies occasionally, she becomes a liar. Because you see, what we do is, is we interpret God's patience and God's mercy as, as, as permissiveness. And not getting caught to us equals opportunity. We get a little taste, the sky doesn't fall, and so we become a little bolder until we become enslaved to it. And, you know, I, I had a friend who, oh, am I supposed to say that now? Hold on to that. I'll tell you about my friend in a minute. This is, so this is supreme folly, okay? Um, you won't say to yourself, <laughs> right? That's not how it works. It happens sort of subconsciously and you believe it on the inside, even though scriptures are full of the fact that nobody gets away with anything. Chapter, uh, Hebrews chapter 4 verse 13 says, nothing in all creation is hidden from God's sight. Everything is uncovered and laid bare before the eyes of him to whom we must give account. The Bible is consistent that nobody gets away with anything. Yes, justice is sometimes delayed, but that does not mean justice is denied one way or another, even if on the surface it doesn't look so bad. Now, that's very uplifting, hey? Wonderful. Let's, let's apply this and talk about the mercy of God, and then I can tell you about my friend in a minute. There's i got four quick applications here, okay? And there probably are dozens more, but we're going to stick with these four very quickly. First of all, what do we do with this? Number one, don't misinterpret God's patience. For me, this has been huge as I've been thinking through and wrestling through this, this passage. Your sin, the sin that you're struggling with or you're indulging that nobody knows about it's not hidden because you're clever it hasn't been un kept undiscovered because you're clever it's hidden because God is merciful 
don't misinterpret God's patience with you and his compassion with you as his permissiveness. Don't see it as opportunity. God sees. God knows. God is watching. Now, that's still sort of like, ooh, you know, scary, but stick with me. Second application. So the first one is don't misinterpret God's patience. Second one, have you ever been caught? doing something you shouldn't do. Mom and dad catch you in a lie. Mom and dad catch you taking something from your sibling. Mom and dad catch you smacking somebody out of anger or name calling or something. And yes, you get punished. Are you mad at your parents for it? Be grateful to God for his mercy. Parents, when you catch your kids doing things that they ought not do, when they're dumb enough or they're, yeah, they're not smart enough to really cover up their sin, be thankful for that. Be thankful that you had the opportunity to catch them now because you have, you have the opportunity to speak truth into that situation. And, and it's not comfortable. It's not easy. Nobody likes it. But it is absolutely liberating. Let me tell, me, tell you about my friend, two friends. I had a friend who struggled for many, many years with porn addiction. And it was hidden from his wife and from his family, and he felt completely enslaved to it until the day that his wife caught him. Now, you, you hear that story and you think, oh, that must have been horrible for him. You know, to hear him tell it, you know what he says? He says, My, the overwhelming feeling I had when I was caught was relief. It was relief. Because now it was out in the open and God in his mercy finally caught me and said enough and we were able to deal with it. Now, the thing is, you have to respond properly. You have to respond to that as though it is the mercy of God and not God putting his fist down upon you and ruining you uh, all the more. Because I can tell you the story of another friend I had who I was very close with and he struggled with drugs. And he, he, didn't, he didn't do heavy drugs, but he, he, he let out, and he even, the police even found out, and he got caught. And you know what happened to him? He got angry at God. He said to God, why can't you just let me have this little bit of fun, and now my whole life is screwed up because I got caught doing this, and it wasn't a big deal, and nobody was getting hurt, and you can't just let me have a little bit of fun. I serve you in every other part of my life. I'm doing my very best for you. I'm on my way to ministry. I'm going to serve you in the kingdom of God, and then all I do is just this one little thing, and you come in, and you nail me for it. And two weeks later, he had to leave school, no, two weeks later he got hooked on crack cocaine and he had to leave school and for a long time his life went completely sideways and he was incredibly bitter toward God because he responded very, very differently to God's mercy, you see now, wonderful ending to that story too got a new life, serving God, he's clean, has a family, praise God for, for his mercy, okay? But getting caught before you come to the place of Ananias and Sapphira and you have to face God's judgment in the moment is a mercy, it is not 
it is the harshness of God is more gracious than the mercy of man. Third thing, we're going to the table in a, in a minute. And it's worth flipping the question. This is application number three. We're asking, why did Ananias and Sapphira die? What's up with that? But really the question we should be asking, if we are completely honest, is, why do I still live? I've been them. I've lived that. And yet I'm still here. And the supper actually dramatizes the answer because it shows us that God is ultimately compassionate and gracious, slow to anger. That is that in history there was only one person ever, one completely innocent person ever that God executed. And that was his own son. And that son said, I will willingly be struck down by my father so that you and I could escape that punishment ourselves. You know, there's two options in the end, right? You stand before God on your own or you stand before God in him. And when you come to this table, what you see at this table is God inviting you, Jesus inviting you, saying, stand in me. You don't have to face that. I faced it for you. And I freely offer my grace and forgiveness to you. And then finally, the fourth thing. This should kill the hypocrisy that lives in us so often. As you look at the table, as you come to the table, as you eat that, that bread, and as you drink that cup, as you are reminded of what Jesus was willing to do in order for you to escape the just punishment for your hypocrisy. It will actually begin to free you from hypocrisy. And here's why. Nobody said it better, to, in my opinion, than J.I. Packer in his book, Knowing God. Listen to what he says. This is just unbelievable. There is tremendous relief in knowing his love to me is utterly realistic. Based at every point on prior knowledge of the worst about me. So that no discovery can disillusion him about me. In the way I am so often disillusioned about myself. And nothing can quench his determination to bless me. Look, God already knows we're hypocrites. Nothing is hidden from his sight. He knew we were hypocrites before he sent Jesus. He knew we were hypocrites while he punished Jesus. He knows we're hypocrites now. And none of that has ever surprised him. None of that has ever shaken him. And none of it is utterly realistic. Now, when that sinks into your heart, when you say, he knows me, and you have no need ever, to look for your satisfaction and your joy and your identity anywhere else but in Him. Let's pray. Father, thank You for Your grace and Your mercy. We are reminded this day that You are a holy God, that You do not wink at sin, that You know it is serious. We confess that we sin. We don't want to. Yeah, sometimes we want to. 
But deep and down in our heart of hearts, we don't want to. We want to be loved. And we want to love. We want to serve our Savior who gave himself up for us. We want to honor you who made that ultimate sacrifice knowing just how messed up we really are. Oh, Holy Spirit, empower us for obedience. Empower us to holiness so that we can be a witness to the world in which we live. A witness not of our greatness, but of your greatness. For the glory of Jesus, we pray. Amen.